coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Ooh, happy weekend. We are here, and so is, well, I was going to say cooler weather, but it's I guess it's cooler than it was three weeks ago. We had false fall, and now we're back into summer. Welcome to The Ron Show. Uh, later in the show, we're going to talk with Blake Schultz. He is the curator of the Instagram account, It's Our Atlanta. That's one of those nice up-and-coming, you learn something new every time you see one of their post sort of uh, Instagram feeds, and uh, I wanted to catch up with him and figure out what drives him to keep learning about Atlanta and, and teaching us along the way. Today's show is going to be a little bit less more about like today's headlines. For example, the grand jury here in Atlanta uh, looking to recommend charges against 39 people, including Senators David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, I'd love to talk about that. However, I had a couple interviews already booked for today, so we're going to dive into those. Suffice to say, we'll talk about that uh, on Monday. We'll talk about uh, Elon Musk meddling with military operations. Is that really a story? And there'll be some other headlines from over the weekend to cover as well. Again, if you're coming for that today, my apologies. I had these interviews booked, and I want to go ahead and give these guys their opportunity. So Blake Schultz will be in the second half of the show I really think you'll enjoy that conversation in the second half of the show if you'll just be patient with me on that, okay? First things first, though, we're going to talk with Andrew Heaton. He is the principal and founder of Sagamore Hill Consulting. Got lots to talk about. Are you ready? You're strapped in. You ready to do this, Andrew? Uh, I'm as ready as I believe I can be, Ron. Okay, first things first. And I know you don't talk much about this, uh, either on social media or otherwise, but I want to pick your brain a little bit on the Cop City Saga because I don't see a whole lot of political feedback coming from our congressional delegation, even at the state level, it seems like a lot of Democrats are just being very silent about that. Do you have a reason why you think that is? I think some of it is just purely jurisdictional. Like the, mm. this is a, this is almost strictly a city of Atlanta matter. Mm. And, and because, or, or DeKalb you know, County or, or DeKalb County to some degree. Right. Um, and, and I think there is a sense of they want to be respectful of the position that the the mayor's administration is in, of the different stakeholders. They don't want to overstep their bounds and, and be seen as talking about something they don't necessarily have any vote on, influence on. Mm. And so they're 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 trying to and I, and I think also because it is such a volatile issue right now because the 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 volume has been turned up so much over the last couple of months i think there's definitely some reluctance to i don't want to step into something that i actually don't have any influence on and that then i you know i i might say the wrong thing one way or the other or i might say the right thing but i still don't actually have any influence on it so i think that's the reason you're seeing a lot of the electeds especially the elected democrats uh you know above the city level are just for the most part keeping the pressure i mean with that said you know, you are starting to see a couple more, especially on the state level. You're starting to see some of the state legislators speak up. Specifically, they're talking more about the process. They're not weighing in pro or con right. too much on the actual Cop City project itself, but they're starting to talk about the process. Uh, Representative Sarah Draper, I think, gave a really good tutorial on Twitter um, two weeks ago um, when it came out that the city was going to be using a version of Signature Match. And she kind of went into link about why she disagreed with that and, and why specifically from a Georgia Democratic standpoint mm -hmm. that, that maybe isn't something we should be leaning into when we have fought it when the state Republicans have tried to institute it in statewide elections previously. And I know Nakema Williams even dove in on, on that very 
part of the conversation as well and said that, oh, I spoke with Mayor Andre Dickens and we both share concerns. Okay, great. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that, well, and, and I think that, that uh, the, the Congresswoman Williams statement is kind of proof positive what I'm talking about. Like she knows she needs to say a little something, but she's trying to keep clear of the lane. <laughs> she doesn't want to get pulled into it too much because again, she has no vote. She doesn't really have a whole lot of determinative factor here. And they are trying to, all of them, the, the different Democratic electeds are trying to give the Dickens administration space to figure out what their game plan here is. Because for for the most part, I think there is some confusion about like what what is the game plan here? Because yeah. I, I think a lot of us have been surprised by some of the moves and some of the ways that, that the city's administration has gone about interacting with this. I like the way you phrase that. Give them some space. I feel almost like you're in a swimming pool and you're seeing somebody drown, but you know you can't pull them to shore or uh, to the to, out of the water. So you just sit back and watch because you don't know what to do. You're a political consultant, so I, I, I find that insight kind of interesting. I've said all along, I wasn't so sure how I felt about Cop City to begin with, but I know what I know, and I know what I see, and I see that the city and most of the politicians who are backing this, and even the Atlanta Police Foundation, they have really screwed the pooch on the narrative for months now and just don't seem to be getting on the better side of it. Yeah, you know, I, I've talked with a couple of my friends in the space about this, and all of us kind of share your confusion about some of the steps that the city administration has taken in regards to how they've gone about the process, the communications, the PR in general around this. I think you went from a situation where six to eight months ago, you probably had the majority of citizens weren't even really thinking about this too much. And if they were thinking about it, probably didn't care that much one way or the other, right. or were inclined to say, hey, sounds like a fine thing to me. I don't care that much. And then just the way that this has been rolled out, the way that they have pushed back, the way that they have gone about some of the processes, I think has really turned a lot of kind of what I would say on the fence Democrats and you know leaning liberals in the city who might have just kind of stayed out of this are now kind of inclined to to maybe not support it. And so I think if this does end up going to the referendum, I think there's a fair number of voters that might have been pro or just not even voted might now be inclined to vote no because they don't like what they've seen as far as the way the city has gone about this. And I, and and I don't know if it had to be this way. <laughs> Well, and, and with the, the, the Fulton prison situation being what it is, we, we have now 10 casualties just in this calendar year and resources needed, money, lots of it, $1.6 to $2 billion needed for that. Fulton County wants to build its own police training facility, uh, done what he does now to Atlanta has their $100 million earmark for that. It just seems like there's an answer of some collaboration involvement and maybe a better allocation of resources that just seems like a glaring answer. And I think that's one of the, the, the things that so many people are just getting confused about because there are so many other projects going around in the metro area. And there are also so many needs. And I mean, I think you're hitting the, the, the topic of the moment. Everybody's just watching what's happening in the in the Fulton County Jail. And we're all just, you're kind of both appalled and confused. Like, how how is this continuing to happen? How are we having so many tragedies back to back to back? And, and what are we doing there? And at the same time, we're, we're, we've got this county jail situation. We're watching all of this money getting pledged to this project and that people still to this day just are confused about why. Why does it need to be the size? Why, yeah. you know? And I think, again, this goes back to the PR part of this. Like I think there are ways that the city might have gone about communicating this to the public that for whatever reason – 
just didn't happen. And now there's just, it seems like there's more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those questions are going to give people a, a feeling of, well, if I don't really understand what's happening, I don't know if I support it or not. Well, and at the macro level, just as a country, we, we just seem to be so hell-bent on expending so much resources on policing, militarizing our police, imprisoning. I mean, we're the most imprisoned country on the planet to be the freest country on earth. And we're, we're going to keep spending money to do that, but we don't see the sort of, the, the lack of crime, I guess you would say. I mean, I, I know what the data says. The data says otherwise, but people still don't feel safe in this country, especially in cities and especially in the wake of like a, like a poor guy who was working after college for a, a valet job just before starting his full-time job after, I mean, he just got shot and killed in the, in, in the middle of the night. We're not seeing the sort of investment that I think would actually stem crime. And obviously that would be, you know, eliminating poverty, but that's a, that's another conversation for another. Right. Well, but, but that's so much of the point there, Ron. I think that's, that's one of the things that we started to to have conversations about pre-COVID. Mm. We were starting to have some real serious conversations about that. And then COVID threw everything so off balance. And mm. we saw this spike in homicides, specifically to homicides and violent crime mm-hmm. during COVID. And here's where reality clashes with perception. Ideology. The reality is in, in a lot of those cities and a lot of areas, those rates are coming back down. Mm-hmm. Atlanta is seeing a drop in homicides, a drop in violent crime. Right. Their overall crime rate is, is dro- I think the only segment, I think they, in small property crimes, they're still seeing kind of right at where it's been the last couple of years yeah. or maybe a slight uptick, but like violent crimes are going down. It's, it's starting to get back to levels it was pre-COVID. Not quite there yet, but it's getting there. But the perception is like, it feels like it's still out of control. And in some areas that, that again, we talk about allocation of resources. So city of Atlanta, city of Atlanta has, has a, a force that is a, approximately appropriate for its population size. Mm. Compare that to DeKalb County, DeKalb County police, which, uh, you know, in some parts of the metro area, especially East Atlanta, whatever, and Decatur, like, there is really no boundary between city of Atlanta heading into DeKalb County. Right. There's, you know, there is a technical boundary, but it, it's all one metro area. Mm. But DeKalb County police, who are in charge of watching over all those areas, especially unincorporated parts of DeKalb County, they have a population size about the same size as the city of Atlanta, but they have half the police force mm. to cover that mm. and to deal with that. That that just doesn't compute that you're going to be able to match the same the same ability to tackle crime when you're dealing with a force half the size needed. Right. Back to Cop City. How do Democrats in a swing state like Georgia heading into the 2024 general election cycle, how do Democrats turn to activists who have been busting their asses this summer to get referendum signatures on petitions? How do Democrats come to them and say, uh, by the way, we need you to rally behind us and our platform and our candidates to stem the Donald Trump tide? Yeah. You know, I think in the immediate, I don't, uh, I think they're going to have to wait a while for that conversation or, or they're going to have to approach it in a, in a different manner because you're right. A lot of those activist organizations, a lot of those groups, those groups that signed on to the letter talking about the signature match issue, there were, I think, 40 or so groups that signed on. And a lot of those are exactly the activist groups that are going to be needed when it comes time to GOTV for, for Biden in mm. 2024. It's folks like New Georgia Project. It's folks like Fair Fight. It's folks like Poder Latinx. I mean, you know, these are the, the groups that they're going to need. And, and a lot of those leaders have signaled like, you probably shouldn't talk to us for a while mm. about GOTV because we're not in the mood to talk about it. And, and so I think it is going to take some of these electeds and some of these folks 
starting to just engage early and have conversations and say, look, you know, here's, here's where I stood, here's why, and just be honest and frank about it. I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of those groups will come back uh, and, and will still eventually, you know, kind of do what needs to be done because they'll recognize there's something larger at stake. Um, you know, like they tend to do and like most of us in this space tend to do when it gets to close election time, because no matter what our emotions are, for the most part, everybody tends to let it go or, or at least move on for the moment to, to tackle the issue at, at hand. And I think that'll be true again when it comes to the election. But I think some serious conversations are going to and some frank and honest conversations are going to have to be had over the next couple of months to, to get them back feeling in a space that are they're ready to work again. Man, I hope you're right, but I feel like the, these two issues are butting up against each other, and there's not going. It's going to be pretty seamless. Like we're not going to have a big gap in like cooling of heads and and, and an opportunity to sort of catch our breaths. But uh, that's listen. Uh, speaking of the general election, there's new CNN SSRS polling that came out. Want to dive into that? Give me just a couple minutes here. We're going to take a break. We're with Andrew Heaton, principal and founder of Sagamore Hill Consulting, local political consultant. Always good to have him on and get his insights. We'll get more of those after the break on The Ron Show. The American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back. We're with Andrew Heaton from Sagamore Hill Consulting, principal and founder and a political consultant. And real quick, I asked you before we even went on, is there anybody that you represent that we shouldn't talk about? But let's talk about your girl, Jerrica Richardson. She's going to run for Congress. <laughs> well, and, and, and full disclosure for your audience, Ron, I, I am working with, with Jerrica. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll talk a little bit about it, but I'll, I'll, uh, I just want that to be out there that I am working with Jerrica and yeah, you know, Greg Bluestein uh, broke yesterday on Twitter, um, you know, and the filings have been public for a couple of weeks now that, that Jerrica Richardson, Cobb County commissioner district two, uh, is, it has filed paperwork and is looking at a run for Congress in the sixth congressional district. Yeah, pretty excited about that. I've had her on the show. She's a, a bright, a bright woman. She's good for her constituents, even though uh, the the gold domers don't want her to have a constituency after they tried to redraw the Cobb map after she'd been elected to it. But uh, that's another conversation for another day. Uh, I just wanted to bring up the fact that she's going to run for Congress. I'm pretty excited about that. And obviously, we're we're waiting on the potential for redrawn maps too. So we'll wait and see how that plays out. I do want to talk about the latest uh, batch of polling from CNN and, and uh, SSRS. And, and I know we're 14 months out, but there has to be con- some concern about the absolute lack of enthusiasm for a Joe Biden uh, re-election can- uh, campaign. Is there, is, there not, is there not some concern on the left for that? I know there is in, in my seat. Oh, I mean, there, you know, nobody is putting their head in the sand. Everybody acknowledges kind of where the situation's at, what the enthusiasm level is, what some of the disappointments have been, especially from the more activist wing of the party. Um, and even everyday folks who, you know, thought certain things would happen, they didn't, or thought certain things would happen in a larger sense. Maybe they didn't, or maybe they passed. And so, I mean, there's definitely, there's going to be a lot of work and the Biden, and the Biden campaign acknowledges this and they understand this. And I think they are, they are very aware of, of the messaging that needs to happen to both own where we're at, uh-huh. but also, but also explain to folks like, you know, a lot of good things have happened and a lot of progress has been made. And a lot of pieces of legislation were passed that have made, that are making a real difference, especially in the economy you know, a lot of the, the, the legislation that, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this last time I was on the show with you, you know, between um, the bipartisan infrastructure plan, uh, between, you know, some of the other pieces of legislation that have really injected 
in energy into, especially manufacturing and green energy uh, jobs here in the United States, and especially here in Georgia, um, you know, I think it's just going to be incumbent upon the administration to highlight that while mm. not ignoring the fact that people, you know, still there are still issues for folks. I mean, we're seeing, again, uh, rises in oil futures and, and uh, some of the commodities, you know, that everyday folks, that's what they see. They see they see the price of the gallon of gas. And yeah. so there's definitely, you know, I think the Biden team understands there is going to be some messaging that's going to need to happen uh, between now and the election. But at the same time, I'm not even sure that messaging is going to help, Andrew. When I was looking at the polling, uh, the question 25, your biggest concern, if any, about Joe Biden as a candidate for president, 49% his age, 7% his mental competence, 7% his health, 7% his ability to handle the job. That alone is 70% of those who were polled. And 6% uh, concerns about his popularity, which I think you can lump into the 7%. So you're at 76%. And, and then you get to the economy or whether he's doing a good job. I mean, it's all like 4% or less at that point in time. I don't think messaging is going to fix that. Yeah. And look, I think we even saw this a little bit in the, in the democratic primary. Um, there was a sense of, especially amongst some of the early backers of some of the other candidates in the 2020 primary, mm -hmm. you know, they, they had candidates they were much more personally enthusiastic about. Mm -hmm. They had candidates who, if given their druthers, well, I would much rather prefer. And even I think most, you know, there are a lot of Biden supporters who probably early on might have said like, well, you know, yeah, he is older. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you know, I, I like the idea that eventually we could get a candidate who's younger or blah, 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 you know, but at the end of the day, what's going to happen is it's going to be Joe Biden versus a Republican on that on that ballot. And I think you're still going to have a, and especially if it's Donald Trump, you know, you're still going to have a lot of folks that are going to at the end of the day say, I still, even with him being older, and even if, you know, my dream candidate was somebody else, you know, this is my choice. And I'm going to, and I'm going to roll the dice with, with Joe Biden one more time, because I still think he, you know, he, he did good work. I think he's a good person. I think most, most folks don't deny he's a good person. Mm -hmm. And when their choice are between a person who maybe is a little older, but is still a good person who, who they do believe has, has tried to do some good work and has actually when given the, the information has done a lot of good work versus a Republican candidate that, especially if it's Donald Trump, they already know what they get if they go that route again. But yet they're, they're polling yeah. head to head. They're in a dead heat head to head. Yeah, they, they are right now this far out. Uh, you know, I'd remind, I'd remind your voters in October 16 of 2012, Romney, 50%. Obama, 46%. Uh, November 5th, 2012, Romney, 49%. Obama, 48%. Sure. Both Gallup polls. Uh, I don't remember a President Romney administration. But we fell so, in love with Obama. We know well, Joe Biden. Well, well, now, but let's not revise our... We fell in love with Obama in 2008. Yeah. And just like with That's President true. Biden, some of that luster had rubbed off by 2012. Yeah, you're right. You know, especially especially when we talk, when we talk about some of these... Uh, the activist groups, and we talk about some of the folks within. Uh, there were a lot of folks that were angry that we did not get Medicare for all. Yeah, that's with true. Obama, that that's we did true. not get universal health care. That's what they felt they had been promised. And there were a lot of activists angry at Obama that that's not what we had gotten. And there were other things, some of the continuations of the wars that they had been promised the wars were going to end yeah, and yeah, hadn't yeah. hadn't quite happened. And so, you know, we we have to kind of properly frame our memory on this. Like there were plenty of folks that were not in love with Obama in 2012 mm -hmm. the way they were in 2008. But at the end of the day, they had a choice 
and they and they eventually came back and voted for Obama. This is why I reached out to you. I literally texted him last night. I said, I need you to talk me off the ledge. <laughs> Andrew Heaton with Sagamore Hill Consulting. Real quick, can you give me a 30-second answer to, is the Hunter Biden stuff going to be a problem? Uh, you know, I think it's something that they need to take seriously, and I think they need to properly address, um, and they need to let the, the system play out and it not look like there's too much interference coming from the administration. But I, I think at the end of the day, no, I, I think it is as much as the Republicans want to make this a Joe Biden issue, mm. it's a it's a Hunter Biden issue. And and to date, there's been no evidence. There's been nothing I'm seeing that Joe Biden is anything other than a loving father who, you know, like so many of us, was trying his best to help us help a son who was going through some struggles. And I think most people aren't going to try to take the sins of the son and put them on the father. Yeah, I got you. All right. Andrew Heaton. Principal and founder, Sagamore Hill Consulting. I'm coming back off the ledge just a little bit. I appreciate the conversation and you helping me through this today. Absolutely. Have yourself a great weekend, buddy. All right, you do, Rock. All right, when we come back, we're going to chat with Blake Schultz, who launched the Instagram account, It's Our Atlanta, teaching us all, himself along the way, a little bit more about Atlanta that we may not have known before. We've got that here on The Ron Show, on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. After this short break... This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, we're back, and my guest this afternoon, Blake Schultz. Blake is, what, what would you call yourself, the curator, the founder, the launcher of It's Our Atlanta on Instagram? Yeah, I usually just default to uh, creator of, of It's Our Atlanta. So All right. That it's, uh, yeah. So uh, It's Our Atlanta caught my attention. We've had on before Will Edmonds from Anecdotal Atlanta. Yeah. And I like routinely catch what he posts because I'm always excited to learn about little history nuggets. I feel like history is a subject that is glossed over in our public education. Mm -hmm. And he goes a little bit deeper into some things that may not belong in textbooks, but are still good little history nuggets to know. Yeah. And so I, following that account happened upon yours as well. And I want you to tell me a little bit about what it's our Atlanta's focus is. Yeah. Uh, so mine's not purely history focused mm-hmm. um, like his. I, I love his account and I love those tidbits. Personally, I think we need more stories about Atlanta being told. Um, most of mine came out of uh, the idea of using it just as a channel, a mechanism to have people more engaged in our city. Mm-hmm. And so um, I come from a marketing, social media background. And so I knew the power of telling good stories. History just happens to be naturally good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started creating this account with the goal of telling compelling stories. And then throughout those stories, dropping in the calls to action, the, the, the pieces that people in Atlanta need to know about. And so that's where I dive a little bit more into infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social components of Atlanta. Um, just, just little tidbits that, that people may not always be focused on, but that they actually have an ability to have an impact on if they're aware. That's awesome. Give us a little bit about you. What's your background? Tell me uh, where you're from, where you grew up, what you studied, where'd you go to school? Yeah. uh, So I am a South Carolina boy, Greenville. So just two hours up 85. Um, Older brother was in Atlanta for quite a while. So I was down here quite a bit. And then eventually I was ready to be back in a a larger city. Uh, And so I made the hop down to Atlanta and uh, was working at a startup and Again, marketing, social media was was mostly the the realm that I was in. Um, then was over at a uh, one of our tech companies here uh, in the city, and um, 
and then actually I was part of some of the tech layoffs uh, and mm. I had all this extra time. And so I was like, let's uh, go chase after some of my projects uh, that have just been on the back burner. And so uh, while I was you know, kind of putting out job applications, I launched this page and it's grown quite a bit. I, you know, I think I just passed the three month mark and I, I probably hit 12,000 followers. Or something. I was just going to say uh, last night it was like 11,600 followers and you were just celebrating 10,000, what, a week ago? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Just something like that, and I, I launched another video about uh, the Marta car heading to uh -huh. the ocean. Um, <laughs> that one's getting quite a bit of traction uh, between uh, TikTok and Instagram. So yeah, we'll we'll see uh, how it keeps growing. Um, again, the, it's right now it's just focused on telling the stories and, and finding the reach that uh, and keeping people engaged with those stories. So then I can drop in those other calls to action, the, the tangible steps that people can be taking to make a difference in the city. Mm -hmm. One of the bigger subjects uh, locally has been the uh, Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. And there, I've watched as this groundswell grow from not much interest nine months ago to now everybody has a take on it, it seems like. Yeah. And I find that your page your social media campaign here with uh, It's Our Atlanta. And you said it's on TikTok as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it hasn't uh, been quite su sure. successful there. I think I'll pass 4,000 followers there. But, you got to put uh, more cats yeah. in there. Yeah. That's how it works. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, but what I was going to say was uh, it, it seems like there, there does seem to be a bit more of a groundswell of engagement on an issue like that. And, and some other things that you've uh, highlighted on, on your page as well uh, deserve some, uh, you know, extra attention from residents uh, alike. Do you find that there seems to be, once people have a little bit more information about something, that they find themselves more compelled to keep up with it, to even participate? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm in this deep enough yet to be able to to speak to that. Um, I That's one of my hopes. Um, I'm also in the future, hoping to bring actual meetup type of aspects to mm. it where I can start um, having in-person engagement. Um, and right now, I have a lot of connections with really great people and they don't have the platform. And so that would give me opportunity to do more connecting of, hey, here's the people doing those things. So bringing both a real life aspect, not just the social media side. Um, but yeah, that um, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the stories and that little amount of information engages and helps people understand that. Uh, I do understand that with a minute and a half that I have to tell a story, there's only so much I can do, but I'm hoping that that minute and a half can be impactful enough that now they're paying attention, now they're listening, they go look up that news article or something like that. Um, so yeah, that, that's the goal. Um, I'm hopefully a year from now, we'll, we'll be able to speak more um, fully on that and have you know great turnouts and uh, how people are engaging. So to give folks an example of what It's Our Atlanta does, I'm going to play some audio from that Marta piece, if you don't mind. Yeah, so let's let people listen to that, and then we'll uh, invite them to follow you at It's Our Atlanta on Instagram and the same handle on TikTok yep. as well. Yep. All right, so let's listen to that. Marta is dumping some of his real cars in the ocean. Let me add some context. Marta is beginning to retire some of its rail cars from its original fleet, but there are only so many ways that you can recycle or dispose of a rail car. That's where the Georgia Department of Natural Resources comes in. They have something called the Reef Project. Essentially, the Georgia coast is just flat sand for almost 80 miles underneath the ocean. That gives very little room for shelter and breeding grounds for marine life. The DNR and other agencies attempt to promote the necessary habitat by building artificial reefs. They drop man-made structures into designated zones. 
where reefs can then develop. MARTA is contributing car 601 and 602, but before they can head to the coast, they have to be stripped. Anything buoyant, all hazardous materials, and any contaminants have to go. Once the Coast Guard inspects and improves them, they're loaded up, shipped off to Savannah, and loaded on barges there. The barges then take them to designated areas, in this case Zone L, and that's where they're dropped. Officials expect the real cars to be full of life within a year, even though they'll be available to divers and fishermen immediately. These MARTA cars will be joining multiple other items already deployed all along the coast. That includes New York rail cars, US Army M60 battle tanks, and multiple other man-made structures. So what do you think? Do you like this new repurposing of MARTA rail cars? Okay, super cool. So not only do we learn that the old MARTA cars are going to have some use that are going to be beneficial for the earth, uh, I mean, we're not just throwing them in the ocean just to throw them in the ocean like garbage, but yep. there's actual a tangible reason for doing so. Uh, there's also the hidden news that, oh, by the way, Atlanta's getting new, new, new rail cars. So that's right. kind of cool. Yep. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, and you know, a lot of people, it's one of those things where MARTA exists, but you know, how many people are actually writing it, at least, mm -hmm. at least from my audience. Uh, and so uh, now people like, oh, interesting. Like maybe, you know, if I'm writing, oh, this car looks really new, nice and clean, just things like that. And now there's more attention on MARTA and I can have further conversations down the road of more ways that MARTA could be improved and, and things like that. So one of the things that I stumbled on uh, history-wise, in fact, I have a friend of mine, uh, Greg, who is in his 70s, and he was telling me the story about uh, going to watch minor league baseball games at the old Ponce de Leon Park. And if anyone's ever been to the Home Depot or the TJ Maxx yep. or the Whole Foods on Ponce, you've literally been in the outfield at the old Ponce de Leon Park. Yes. If you've had uh, a, a lunch at uh, the, the, the Margarita place, you... Yep. Home plate, basically. That's it's uh, one of the things that. But he told me a little nugget. He he talked about how like he and his dad used to take the streetcar mm -hmm. to go watch ball games at Ponce de Leon Park. Yeah, and not a lot of folks even know that. Speaking of Marta, that Atlanta had a pretty extensive streetcar network once upon a time. Once upon, yeah, it had over 200 miles of streetcar rails throughout the city. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in fact, Ponce is interesting because there's certain parts that is extremely wide for the type of avenue that it is. And that was due to it having 30 feet and 30 feet on both sides of the rail line and the rail line having its own corridor down the middle. Once that was paved over, now you have these you know, sec sections of ponds that are just extremely wide. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it, there's construction that still happens and people are like, oh, what is this metal underneath the street? <laughs> yeah. It's part of the uh, old uh, streetcar line. Do you think about stuff like that and go, oh man, I really wish Atlanta had kept on to that and yeah it's and it's not just the I, I think that's a very difficult place where we are as a city is I, mean, I think it's only like 22,000 people that are inside of like the beltline mm -hmm. component mm -hmm. of the city um and not tons more inside the perimeter our our, our masses are you know it, it's a very big suburb uh, suburbia mm -hmm. type mm -hmm. of city and we deal with, you know, a lot of the traffic that people complain about is because people commute in. Mm -hmm. We don't have a tons of people, relatively speaking, we don't have a tons of people inside the city. Um, but you all of a sudden bring in a, a system that has that type of reach. And now, instead of both inner city and outside the city traffic conflicting, you're eliminating one of those. Uh, so yeah, there's very interesting ways to think about like what the city would look like with active streetcars. Um, the technically our bus line still does cover pr 
pretty much everything that right. the 200 miles did, but there's definitely a different level of attraction to uh, the streetcar versus uh, you know, the, the buses that the system we have now. Well, I would argue that a lot of that stems from some of the demonization uh, over the last 50, 60 years from the, uh, from the ex, from the suburban, you know, out, outflow yep. white flight, if you want to call it yep. that and the demonization of buses and, and what comes with that. Uh, but we also see now the Beltline, you spoke of that there all along has been this plan to have the streetcar, the new streetcar right. uh, project is supposed to tag along with the Beltline and people are freaking out about it. Like they're, just finding this out like right, yeah. wait a minute who decided that was gonna happen? well that was there all along yeah it, 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 it do you do you find that kind of funny as well that people are just freaking out they love the belt line but now they're freaking out about one of the principal projects that was supposed to be part of the belt line all along yeah it's it's very interesting um i i actually just got my hand on one of the original flyers when the belt line was just a concept. oh cool it was you know uh, ryan gravel had just you know the his thesis had just got into the right hands and the conversations had just started uh actually i think uh, ryan was the one that created the pamphlet and there it is is this you know very early 2000s i believe it was mm. um rendering of what the belt line could look like um uh, so yeah, that has been the idea the whole time, and it's, it is fascinating the the pushback to this streetcar. Uh, it doesn't help that the one streetcar project that we have done uh, in modern history um, was mostly just a big let me check it off the list type of thing yeah. with the federal funding, and it was like number eleven on the project list of streetcars that transportation experts actually wanted, and mm. then we just get this kind of sore of a streetcar that goes nowhere it really does very little um, i mean it's two blocks from where i live i right. take it when i go to a falcons or united yeah. game or a hawks game or a concert or something like that but other than that i have no use for it yeah uh, and, and with it you know now streetcars have this very negative modern connotation in the city and it's like this is very different like this actually connects people from where they are to where they want to be right um and and then a lot of the noise complaints like oh we finally have like a peaceful place to walk and it's like First off, like that only speaks to how like car centric our city is. Mm -hmm. Like we're so used to hearing our, the the noise pollution that comes with cars in the city um, that putting you know a streetcar all of a sudden is like very offensive to this very peaceful place we have. Um, but I don't think that's actually going to be as much of an obstacle that people are freaking out that it is. Well, yeah, and uh, sit, sit sit by the streetcar route and let's do it when it goes by. It's quiet. It's very quiet. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear like a bell dinging or something like that. That's really it. It's a quiet street. It's it's an electric streetcar. It's very quiet. Yeah. And, and it's not like it's going to be constantly, you think of a highway. Yeah. yeah. There's cars constantly. You would never be able to cross that. You know, somebody was really concerned, like what happens to all the business? It's like, no, the streetcar is there to help promote that. Because right. all of a sudden when it's raining, when, you know, or Bingo. we're not even talking about accessibility and things like that. All of a sudden the Beltline becomes accessible to so many more people by adding the streetcar in uh, with the uh, walking path. So we're with Blake Schultz. He launched the Instagram and TikTok profiles that you can find at It's Our Atlanta. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, come back with you real quick, and uh, catch up on that conversation. Thanks for listening to The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back. We're with Blake Schultz, who launched the Instagram and TikTok channels. You can find them at It's Our Atlanta. Where do you derive this interest in civic engagement and even like urban design and planning? I, I sense a lot of that in your work on It's Our Atlanta. 
It's a very interesting aspect where there's so much intersectionality to all of this. You look at history and you realize that all of these things used to be a priority, everything from public services to infrastructure. And then suddenly when it became accessible to everyone, those things were either privatized or deprioritized. I've always been very much into history and infrastructure. And that is where I have done a lot of my nerding out. And when I was here and realized just the intersectionality that Atlanta has in particular, I just started trying to pull the pieces together and was like, man, people need to know about this. And I already had the professional experience to know how to put together a page and, and kind of uh, some social media movement. Having not grown up here, and I didn't either, I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, so we're not all that far from from, from the Atlanta footprint from where we grew up. Right. Does it not strike you that Atlanta's story and the struggles that Atlanta went through and still does deal with, we talk about the lack of mass transit and traffic and mm-hmm. sprawl and and uh, the, the, the struggle between the, the suburb and the, the inner city and even that along racial lines. Do you find that Atlanta is almost like a textbook example of just about what every city of any size in this country has had to experience? Because you know, you yeah. grew up in Greenville. I grew up in Augusta. A lot of these situations aren't situations that are any different than what Augusta's gone through over yeah. the years. So I'm actually reading a book right now by Kevin Cruz called White Flight. Mm-hmm. Um, forget what the subtitle is. But he's, a, he's a good follow on Twitter too. Yes, fantastic follow. Uh, but his book is literally looking at how modern conservatism could be pretty much fully painted by just looking at the history of Atlanta. And mm. uh, so it's been very fascinating looking at uh, all the different components that he believes has um, you know, been a part of white flight and, and modern conservatism. Yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. And Atlanta's the, the breeding grounds of the civil rights movement and, and things like that. And yet, uh, you know, the city is the largest wealth disparity mm-hmm. of any city in the United States. It's the number one city of least upward mobility. And mm. these things are all by by design. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look at Atlanta and take what has happened and, and where we are. And yeah, that blueprint pretty well fits on almost any other city, especially in the South. You and I are both, uh, spoiler alert, white liberals. And we are, are, are gentrifiers, I guess you could say, to, right. to some respect. Does that ever strike you when you have those conversations where you're like, ah, you know, I want to be part of the solution, but I'm, I'm a little concerned that maybe I'm part of the problem as well? Yes. Yeah, that is definitely something I have to be very thoughtful of, and especially since I'm telling any part of history in Atlanta is going to be connected to race. Right. And so I also have to be very thoughtful in the stories that I tell because I don't want to be exploiting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was just speaking with someone recently and tech worker came to town. Oh, I got this amazing house, but man, Atlanta has all these problems. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and all of a sudden start talking about like where they bought their house. And it's like, you understand like that was a, you know, um, black community mm-hmm. that is being run out. And he mm-hmm. like has this realization moment of like, oh, like I'm one of the people <laughs> causing, you know, this, this disparity. So yeah, it's something that I have to be very thoughtful of, but there's also a component that isn't talked about in that gentrification is often seen as such a negative thing, but the reason it's such a negative thing is because who's left behind in the profits and the what is actually being developed. Mm-hmm. If there was a better wealth 
distribution mm. with the development, uh, as in like when somebody's property is being purchased, all of a sudden they are getting more of that share, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden they can't right. afford to be somewhere else that they want to be. And see, uh, I, I work in real estate, so I see this all the time, where folks who are just overcome by the property tax increase, right. and they finally have to sell, they'll sell to some flipper for bargain basement rate, right. and then they run off and see that what they just sold for $200,000 got flipped into selling for 500000 and they feel like they missed out on an opportunity. And by the way, this is where I would point out, talk to a real estate agent, because we do have companies that work with you to do the flip yourself. And you don't pay until you sell if you decide to sell. So so I, I see a lot of that bear fruit. But I also get a sense of nimbyism, even from folks who, like I said, we, you know, you move to the city, you want to be part of the culture, you want to see the city succeed, you want to see folks, you know, have an opportunity. Yeah. But you also don't want it to affect your property value or be in your backyard. Do you, do you, do you see that sometimes too? Absolutely. And I actually had a conversation with a council member where I was... I was at a zoning meeting and the the disconnect was kind of alarming in that, you know, it would be great, especially, I guess, the younger millennial, like there's a, there's a whole section of people that would love to start owning property. Um, and some of that is like, they're like starter houses used to be a very popular thing, Uh but that doesn't really exist. Starter homes aren't the easiest thing to flip. The profits aren't Mm -hmm. as great. Like, you know, some type of things. If we adjusted our zoning, all of a sudden we start getting townhouses and things like that that are easier entry points for Mm -hmm. people and her pushback was yeah but if you add more housing to these streets that takes away my parking and it was just like kind of mind-boggling of like there we are again car centric right and it's like there's ways to avoid that but like also we need housing and the fact that from what i remember a land is pretty much a 50 50 split between owners and renters Mm. um a lot of the infrastructure we have and the systems we have very much cater to people who own homes already. And it's, it's mm-hmm. hard to have people fighting for you uh, as a renter. And so like, that's a whole nother aspect of that, that nimbyism where it's like, we need places to put people. It seems like city council is trying to walk a fine line too, because every time a new development is announced, they're also pointing out that the, the parking regulations are, are changing. They're tightening the regulations. They only want like, you know, 1.2 spaces per every unit now or, yeah. or, Point eight or whatever it is. So we're, we're seeing that play out in new zoning and in new developments as well. But MARTA's not growing. We're not getting more MARTA. I mean, we're getting some BRTs here and there and the streetcar yeah. a decade down the road. There is that tap dance that the city council is having to do to get folks a little less reliant on vehicles, but the options other than vehicles mm-hmm. still aren't readily available. It was a, a series of uh, essays. And uh, one of the arguments in it that that isn't talked a lot about is the diversion um, and and how powers are set up. Uh, Atlanta City Council has very little control over what is being impacted because all of a sudden you get into Fulton County, you get into mm-hmm. Cobb County, all of this, uh, and then you've got uh, GDOT that's also mm-hmm. um, playing a piece in transportation. It's very difficult to make sure there's enough interagency collaboration mm-hmm. to to be where we need to be. And so there there are some people that their solution is, hey, we need to unify and make it like a, a mega. Like a larger uh, governing body. Well, right. to that point, the mayor is kicking around the idea of running for the chair of like the, the metro. The regional. Yeah, the regional uh, planning commission, yeah. right. All right, well, I really feel like we could sit here and talk for another hour or two about everything that's affecting Atlanta. Blake Schultz, uh, it's it's encouraging to see somebody who has moved into Atlanta. You've been here how long now? 
Uh, I'm just over three years. Okay. But it's encouraging that somebody as young as you are coming into the city and saying, well, I'm not just going to live here and have fun here. I want to involve myself. And I, I encourage more people to do that. So uh, kudos on you for doing that. It's Our Atlanta. You can find that on Instagram and TikTok. Blake Schultz, thanks for the time, dude. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invite. All right, thank you for listening to The Ron Show this week. I know you tune in normally hoping to hear me talk about things like, I don't know, how many indictments Fonnie Willis could have dropped. We found that out today. Oof. Plenty to discuss there, and we will pick up on it on Monday, okay? Uh, let's just take a break and enjoy some conversation that's not so heavy and not so dour, right? We can also maybe talk about Elon Musk thwarting a military operation. Did he do so with the U.S. military's blessing, though? My gut says probably not, but we'll pick up on that heavy conversation. I also want to thank Andrew Heaton for joining us in the first half of today's show from Sagamore Hill Consulting. There was the heavy for the day, right? It was poll numbers. So I want to thank each and all of you for listening and uh, enjoy your weekend. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app and at AmericaOneRadio.com. And then afterwards, wherever you podcast, if that's where you're listening, I do appreciate that. Show notes at RonShowATL.com. Have a great weekend.